Welcome to another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records. And those of you who've listened before know every time we come out with a new release on Sadie, we come out with a new Classical Chicago podcast. And our new release for March 2022 features oboist Alex Klein and pianist Philip Bush in a program titled When There Are No Words revolutionary works for oboe and piano. And you just heard a snippet of one of those revolutionary works, the scherzo of a suite for oboe and piano by Clement Slavitsky, a Czech composer we'll be talking more about later. First, I should introduce our guest for this podcast, who is, of course, oboist Alex Klein. In his bio in the recording booklet, it says, one of the world's leading oboists when it says one of the world's leading players of an instrument, it's often a bit hyperbolic. But in this case, no, this is really true of Alex. There's only a handful of truly world-renowned oboists, past and present, and Alex is one of them. Alex was the principal oboe of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra from 1995 to 2004, later given emeritus status by Ricardo Muti won a Grammy Award in that period for his performance of the Richard Strauss Oboe Concerto with Daniel Barenboim conducting, won the first prize in more competitions than I care to mention. He is currently principal oboe for the Calgary Philharmonic as well as for the Aspen Chamber Symphony. He's on the faculty at DePaul University of Chicago and the Aspen Music School. After leaving the Chicago Symphony, Alex has devoted his career to advancement of young players, from Latin America and disadvantaged communities, and we'll talk about some of those in a moment. In fact, it's one of the things that's interesting to me, Alex, and first of all, welcome to this podcast. Hello. Is how your career has been divided over several locales. We didn't even get to Seattle, which I believe was your stomping ground before Chicago. So I'd love you to talk about the different places your career has been based, Brazil, Seattle, Chicago, more recently Calgary, and how you've split your time between those places and different schools and orchestras and festivals, etc. Yeah, the music business is already tricky. It's very hard for us to simply go to the university and get a job around town. We often can't be choosy. So it takes us places. And often we jump off to other places after that. And in my case, with the whole thing with Foco Dystonia, he added another level of changes and moves. We try to experiment with what else can we do? How else can we be relevant given the circumstances? And how has that led you to different locales? There is no script. The thing with being a musician with two faulty fingers is pushing the envelope. There is no plan. There is no pre-established norm that you do this, this, and that for a few years, and then you move up to that. We don't know. So we have to go trying and open up the road for those who follow us. So they don't fall into the same potholes that I do, and maybe follow up on the good things that happen as well. So it just means that every few years, life changes. Some people say that every seven years, a musician jumps into something else. And for those of us who have a physical issue, it's maybe every three or four years. And the onset of the focal dystonia, that started while you were here in Chicago, correct? That is correct. 
I know now before that you were in Seattle. I know this because in your first few recordings, and I believe this is what, your 10th now for Sadie Records, this new Mm -hmm. one? But in your early recordings, I remember we used to get reviews out of Seattle immediately, and they were incredibly effusive and talked about with fondness when you were there. So what was your role during that period? It was my first job out of school. I was the oboe teacher at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I was there for four years. Uh, before auditioning successfully for the Chicago Symphony. During that time, I recorded the Vivaldi Concertos. It was my first complete solo album, and that was re-released by CD. And it was an interesting time in Seattle. Lots of new adventures, lots of energy put into the oboe studio there. I also founded the Chamber Music Society of Seattle, no relation to that institution now. Since we closed ours, another institution used that same name and that does the Seattle Chamber Music Festival. In any case, we created a chamber music series in town and we brought guests from outside of Seattle to play with musicians there. It was my first real life experience with management and it was just a very interesting learning experience. Well, to move even further back, and I should mention, if people want to learn more about your early history, I would refer them to Classical Chicago Podcast, episode 26, when we discussed your previous album, 20th Century Oboe Sonatas, also with Philip Bush at the piano, a largely French program. You can find Classical Chicago Podcasts, if you haven't already, on different sites on Spotify, Apple Music, and of course, through the Sadie Records uh, website itself. But in any case, one thing that you talked about in that podcast was how music and specifically the oboe was your calming drug, your Ritalin, as it were, growing up. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a healthier drug, I guess, as I wasn't quite fitting into school because most likely uh, attention deficit. And the school recommended to my parents to either try sports or arts, something that had a lot of energy. It didn't work out with piano. It didn't work out with swimming, but the oboe did. The oboe, it is a very difficult instrument to play. That's no secret, but it requires so much energy, so much focus and dedication that it grabbed all of that extra energy and allowed me to proceed. I got to do better in school. I got to go to the university, which in, in Brazil is a tough thing to do. And life moved on more or less organized from that point. My mind was always very creative, always thinking of another way, another point of view of seeing the same information. And that was very helpful for me as an artist. So I'm glad I never had to take the drug. These days when kids get ADD, they just give them Ritalin or some other thing. Maybe parents should give them an oboe or a <laughs> horn or, or some other difficult orchestral instrument and have them get a go at it. Interesting idea. Well, since you got your start, of course, in Brazil, and lately you've returned to Brazil. In fact, as we record this podcast, you're in a studio in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about some of the programs that you've founded and have been working on there more recently? The one where I am right now is the Santa Catarina Music Festival, or FEMUSC. 
we're on our 17th season. Mm. It's a music festival. It's two weeks only. And we do more concerts in these two weeks than many orchestras do all year. We do usually 200 concerts. We receive over 3,000 people per day in our audience. And this particular one, because of COVID, of course, we reduced. We are doing only about 70 performances for this week and next. Uh, something like five or six performances a day only. And we receive students from up and down the Americas, as well as Europe and Asia and Australia. Well over 40 countries have been represented. Teachers come from the great institutions uh, in Europe, U.S., Canada, and as well some in Latin America. It's beautiful, Jim, when we see that spark that happens when a great young talent is hungry for information. And we put in front of this person a teacher who is hungry to give, generous and wanting a legacy, wanting to share their knowledge. And then everything explodes around. Then we have more students. Then we have more public and more concerts, more repertoire. And we created a very efficient little festival, but it ends up involving our whole town. It became an economic boom. Month of January, summer in Brazil, everybody goes to the beach. And here we're filling hotels, we're filling restaurants, shopping centers full, and we're moving to town. We produce three times more economic activity than our budget. And 450 jobs are created around the festival, either in the festival or people who depend on the festival. Now, like the people who distribute water, mineral water for people to drink. These are the best two weeks out of the entire year. <laughs> awesome. Well, to move on to the project at hand, can you talk about what your inspiration for this was? And if I recall correctly, you already had your idea for this project in mind, even as we were recording your previous album a few years ago. Yeah, usually things that I record, I mull around in my mind for you know, several years, even many years before I even send a proposal to CD Records. And I only send the proposal when the project has matured in my heart. This one has been at least 10 or 15 years that I wrote it down. I want to do this because I saw something that connects all of these works and is something that I'm passionate about. And it is also relates to my own life. Wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the actual title. Uh, it has sort of has two titles, When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano. And I will just note that their sort of running themes of this program include political oppression, war, and exile. Well, there are times when there are no words for us to explain the disasters that human civilization steps in on a regular basis. And when we hear the drum beats of war on the news, we go, so there we go again. It's not just the destruction of war itself, but the horrible amount of money that goes into preparing for it that can be better used. We have so many people without, and we spend trillions preparing to kill each other and destroy the little we have built. 
as humanity. So music has this benefit that it can express things that words can't. And several times in this repertoire, we see situations uh, where a calamity cannot be better expressed than through sound. And then there's, of course, the one time where the words were taken out, and that's the suite by Pavel Haas, which was originally composed as a set of songs for voice and piano, but he deleted the text and left it for oboe and piano instead, because the text was nationalistic, those were Nazi times, and he would have easily been jailed or worse if authorities at the time found out what he wrote. Of course, the first two works on the program are concerned with those Nazi times. Before we get to them, the booklet opens with an introductory note from you on the program order, and you talk about how this program has three distinct chapters. Do you want to say a word about that before we get into the individual pieces? Yeah, we have, as you mentioned, Hindemith and Haas, the two H's <laughs> in the composers, they were face to face with Nazi, with hate, and with a society that was driven by the emotion, by the euphoria that was misdirected as well. And then we have the S's, Cicada and Slavitsky, who were exiled from their countries due to political upheaval. One, because his country turned communist, and the other, because the country thought he was a communist. And in either case, they were expelled and went into ostracism. And then the two Bs, Balcom and Britain, wrote pieces that are directly, obviously anti-war. Britain going as far as describing the path to war and the consequences of it. And Balcom, the shortest piece of all, it's only six minutes. Balcom lets us know, look, this is out of our hands. What can we do? Here's disaster. So there are three chapters in this recording dealing with different facets of the issue of political displacement, war, revolution, or how we relate to all of this. So the three points of view. Well, let's get into that first chapter now. And of course, the first piece on the album is one of the true repertoire works in the oboe piano literature, the Hindemith Sonata. And it itself, I think, is fair to say, has two chapters to it, as you describe. And I should note, by the way, the notes in the album are divided into historical notes by Leon Chernoff, and then Alex has his own notes on the pieces themselves. And in your notes, you talk about how there's really a tale of two movements or two chapters in the Hindemith. The first, recognizing what was happening, and, and by the way, he falls into the exile list on this album because he had to remove himself, especially because he was married to a Jew, from Germany, yeah. and he was already in Switzerland by the time he wrote the Sonata in 1938. But how the first movement describes what was happening in Germany with the Nazis taking over and destroying that society, and the second movement perhaps imagining what could have been. Can you talk a little bit about that contrast? We don't have a script. Hindemith didn't leave a letter explaining all this is what came to my mind. But it is obvious that anybody who cares, especially in a time of great upheaval, will end up expressing their lives 
people create art based on their surroundings. And we just have to look for clues. So when Hindemith writes a temple of 120, that coincidentally is the temple of a military march, except that in Hindemith's point, the piano plays in three, like a waltz, and the oboe plays what would be the theme of a military march. So the two are not sinking. They are falling apart all the time, as if there's something terribly wrong with this military march. And we find other odd things. It's a movement that doesn't end. It just fizzles, and then he puts a little chord at the end, and that's it. But there is not closure of all the themes. It just fizzles. And then on the second movement, we find other symbols that I find inevitable to relate to some of the best things the German people have brought to the world. The Wagnerian long phrases, how we can make a statement that is complete to its fullest. And there's a fugue. And we know since Baroque time from the fugues of Bach and so on, how fugues are a symbol of order, of giving the right of way, of complementing one another. And then the end of it is particularly important. We know from the sonata form that the second theme is usually the one that deals with uh, something more gentle. And Hindemith then repeats the second theme of that second movement over and over and over, sort of in the same way that Beethoven did in his famous slow movement of the seventh symphony, that it just grows, grows, grows. It's as if Hindemith is telling us, repeat the calm theme, repeat the one that is more gentle, Mm -hmm. concentrate on that. Right, And he also ends in G major. This is all subjective, right? We're going to say G major means this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. But if we get together every piece ever written in G major, we begin to trace an idea that G major has peace in it. However else you can describe it, if it is gentle, uh, whatever words we use, there is an idea of peace. Whereas the first movement begins in G minor. Again, if we line up all the pieces we know that they're in G minor, Mm. we see they have this intensity in them. So it's like Hindemith carried us through a story where he is insisting that we look for a better way. And of course, he can't write this stuff down or just like Haas, he'll get a bullet in his head very quickly, right? And it's such is the case with Shostakovich. He couldn't really write what he meant, but, but we all know, we know, right? I see a, a message there, maybe a personal thing. And sometimes, yeah, true. We musicians believe so much in a story, in a piece that we end up finding things that go with our idea. So maybe this is my idea, my vision of Hindemith, but I truly believe in the message that I just relate to you. It's interesting, the opening of the Sedana has a certain, I would say, almost chirpy quality to it. What, mm-hmm. what do you think accounts for that? 
we don't like to say it in these words. So I apologize if I in any way uh, offend anybody. It's not my intention. But particularly as I'm speaking from German territory in Brazil, I'm in the middle of the German colonies here. Hmm. And that's why my name Klein comes from, oh. by the way. And the ascension of Hitler in a time prior to the internet and where news often took months to get here, there was this passionate way that the populace related to Hitler. It was only later when we started putting things together and of course finding concentration camps that this entire part of Southern Brazil went into a terrible depression, not just economic, but in terms of uh, cultural identity, right? There are still towns here that people speak German, but less so since the Second World War. Well, to get back to the Sonata, because we're going to hear an excerpt from the first moment in a moment, you write, the first moment conveys an image of intense social order, imposition of norms and discipline, lacking proper comprehension, coming in off key as interruptions to previous material. So to illustrate this and to set us up, can you talk a little bit about how this happens in the development portion, this being a sonata, of course, of the movement. And we'll hear the development going into the recap where the themes come back and I'd say in even more falling all over each other fashion. The exposition of all the themes in the first movement of the Hindemith Sonata ends in E major. Okay, everything is lovely. There is E major. And then I play the very worst note possible to go with in natural. that is a D natural. And that melody that I play first by myself goes down. Like it seems distorted. It seems like it doesn't belong there, right? And he develops that idea over and over with the piano, but not with the corroborative idea of a fugue yeah. or a canon yeah. or a supportive way. It's sort of like a one-upmanship thing. Huh. Hindemith made a choice. I'm going to write it this way. What could possibly have gone in his mind that he chose to write it this way, right? And then we start connecting all of the dots and it gives us an idea of something. Something was happening there. And that's the idea that I follow. Well, let's hear that then. So here is basically the middle portion of uh, the first movement of Paul Hindemith's Sonata for Oboe and Piano as performed by oboist Alex Klein and pianist Philip Bush from their new album, When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano.
You just heard a portion of the first movement of the two-movement sonata for oboe and piano of Paul Hindemith, the opening work on Alex Klein and Philip Bush's oboe and piano, respectively, album, When There Are No Words. The next piece on the album, which is subtitled Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano, is by Pavel Haas. And we talked about World War II and the rise of the Nazis driving the German composer Hindemith to exile. Unfortunately, it drove the Czech composer Pavel Haas to his death, first being exploited in the Terezin concentration camp, which was something of a propaganda camp where the Germans put a lot of great musicians to write works and fool the Red Cross. And then when they were done with them in 1944, sent them all to Auschwitz and Haas was one of those who was murdered in Auschwitz that year. He wrote his suite for oboe and piano, and it has an interesting history, as you started to note earlier, Alex, having been originally scored for voice and piano, although the text has never been recovered, correct? Correct. So if there is no text, we look at other information. It's the first musical idea. Right at the very beginning, he wrote furious. We are supposed to play that furiously. Okay, we can do that. But why? Why would he start a piece like that? And then the second movement, he introduces the theme of the hymn of St. Wenceslas, the patron saint of the Czechs. Why? And then we have a last movement. Normally, when we have a set of movements or suite, we expect to have the last movement go out with a bang. Just about every symphony ever written does that, with the exception of Tchaikovsky's sixth. And then we have some other examples here and there. In the oboe, the Poulenc sonata ends softly. And we then start looking at these exceptions and seeing what could have gone through Haas's mind to end this oboe suite like that. And then with the story of the voice, and especially as we're dealing with the whole Nazi thing, and after the St. Wenceslas came into the picture, here's a man who had to divorce his German wife or Czech wife, she and not Jewish. So she and their daughter could get out of Europe and they ended up in New Jersey, from what I'm told. These were not fun times, this was 1939. Again, we line up all of these curiosities. We come up with a story. The first movement sort of says, good Lord, this is a problem. I don't know what to make out of this. I don't have answers. The second movement is the battle. That's when we have the Nazi bells. The way he wrote for the piano, there's no way a voice or an oboe can compete because the piano has very loud chords and we can't play them soft just to be together. What's the point? The music is what it is. The way the writing goes for oboe or voice, there are jumps where the instrument goes very low for a couple of notes. They will not be heard. Yeah, it's made on purpose to show that there is a struggle and the oboe is not winning it. 
Before we move on to how it ends, I thought it might be instructive to hear some of that battle, as you point out. I should note the Sonata was written in 1938, the year before the Nazis invaded Poland, but obviously were already well ensconced in Germany, leading to, as we mentioned earlier, Hindemith's escape. So this was the backdrop of when Haas was writing this piece. We're going to hear a portion of this battle movement, the Confuoco, with fire, which to me almost sounds like a chase scene. And then there's a moment that feels like a lament coming after it. Do you want to set that up before we play it? Yeah. When my kids talk about bullies in school or when we find situations in life that are really sad, what happens after that? We cry. What happens after we cry? There's that moment of silence when we try to regroup after something really bad happens. And I hear that in Haas. I hear that he accepts. Okay, fine. So this is not going to go well. Uh, Okay, I'm going to die from this. Okay. So no, you, you get a diagnosis of something really bad and you realize, okay, uh, this is it. it. At the end of that comes this Wenceslas, this anthem. And we see then a hope, but it's not just hope that I'm going to go to heaven and everything is going to be okay. It's empowering. And it puts the Nazis to run. It's more powerful than what the Nazis can do. So, wow, how can we write a book on that? How can we show that there is a power which the Nazis cannot overcome? That is represented by the end of the second movement. All right, well, before we get there, let's hear some of the middle of the second movement. So here is a portion of the Confuoco second movement of Pavel Haas's 1938 suite for oboe and piano. Once again, Alex Klein, oboe, and Philip Bush, piano.
You just heard a portion of the second movement of Pavel Haas's Suite for Oboe and Piano as performed by Alex Klein and Philip Bush on Oboe and Piano, respectively, from their new Sadie Records album. And now you mentioned that this goes from this unwinnable battle against the Nazis ultimately to a victory of sorts, post-mortem, as it were, for Haas, is imagining a world, well, you refer to it in the notes as his act of defiance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Haas was a disciple of Janáček. He mm-hmm. was very much entrenched into the nationalistic view. For him and those like him, the idea of Czechoslovakia being taken over by Germany, it was an insult to their sense of identity, of cultural identity, right? If that is lost and there is no way to recoup it, he appears to be showing us that it won't last. It's like when we use the word karma. The world turns, eventually it'll come back. And it did, right? It didn't take long. And just unfortunate that has had he lived another two years in those concentration camps, we would have had him safe, right? But it didn't turn out that way. Well, in his portion of the notes, Leon Chernoff notes that Haas was one of a group of Czech Jewish composers who both went to Theresienstadt and then Auschwitz, along with Gideon Klein and Victor Ullmann. And the only member of this group who was to survive was actually not a composer. It was uh, Karl Anscherl, the uh, great Czech conductor. Haas obviously Mm -hmm. did not make it. Yeah. Well, by the way, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, I hope you'll want to check out the album itself. Again, the album is titled When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano, and it's available, of course, on the Sadie Records website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e-records.org, or wherever you like to get your music, whether you stream it on Spotify or Apple Music or on a more high-end site like maybe Idagio, or if you prefer to get it as a download on Apple Music or iTunes, Uh, Or, of course, get the physical CD from Amazon. It's available any way you want it, and I hope you'll definitely want to check it out. Well, now we move way forward in time for the next piece. Composer certainly living in a more comfortable circumstance than the last two. I'm speaking of William Bochum, who is still with us. Actually born in the year those last two works were written, I noticed, uh, 1938. But at a time that was still uncomfortable for many of us living through it, this was his Obad, which is usually a greeting to the dawn, but this has the interesting title Obad for the continuation of life. And the reason it's titled that way is this was written in the beginning of the 1980s when there was a lot of saber-rattling going on between the United States and the Soviet Union, both of which were sitting on huge uh, nuclear stockpiles. And we were all worried about the possibility of nuclear war. How does this piece for you, Alex, deal with that situation? And can you talk a little bit about its genesis and the others involved in it? Yeah, the understanding I have is that William Balcom was having a friendly conversation with two other great musicians, uh, Oboist Heinz Holliger and pianist and conductor Dennis Russell Davis. And they were concerned, like those of us can also look at the news today and be concerned about what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in North Korea and uh, how every week seems to have a development of a new weapon that can be more destructive faster and people just not getting along. There are no answers for us regular people 
we are not on top of the decisions. It makes us question whether democracy really works if the people who are going to die because of these decisions do not have a voice in going there and saying, please don't do this. So Balkans Obad represents that. It's sad and it's uh, questioning what can be done. The middle section seems to show that disastrous moment when things slip out of control and before you know it, it's done. As we look into history of war, even recent history, it's incredible how we could have avoided it. It was just the wrong word said at the wrong time. And then somebody shot the Archduke <laughs> in Sarajevo and boom, there we have a world war because of that. It just little things uh, create a catapult moment. And there we go. This first shot is fired. At that time, Holliger, Davis and Balcom were worried about that, that the first shot is going to be uh, sent and then it's doom and it's confusion and loss. Uh, those who are familiar with Bolcom's music through pieces like his cabaret songs and the graceful ghost rag, for example, that is not the Bolcom of this piece at all, is it? <laughs> no, no. He wrote so many fun things to play. His oboe concertino is jazzy. It's just wonderful writing. This is music for us to be thinking. And it ends in a beautiful D major and with a choir of spirituality, of hope that we are going to pull through. And we did. Uh, we did not have a nuclear war in the 1980s, right? And then we hope we're not going to have one next week. And I think part of this, of course, must have been the influence of his companion, since both Holliger and Davies were avowed modernists. But in any case, you write in the notes, this is the part we're going to hear, the Obad's climax follows an agitated section that stumbles into a dramatic high note on the oboe, followed by similar catastrophic representations in the piano, which, of course, leads us to imagine it's really an explosion, you know, what could happen. But as you point out, it ends hopefully in D major, and a portion we'll hear is, in fact, that lead up to and through the explosion, and including as it starts to turn to the major. Is there anything you want to say more about this section before we play it? The beautiful thing about music is that it's not a specific. I can imagine that high note being shock, or it can be a nuclear bomb going off, or it can be somebody being slapped. It can be whatever we imagine. I played it with the idea that all of a sudden, a nuclear bomb went off. It would interrupt everything that was happening before, and there we have it, right? Shame it or not, but it happened. Now what? Let's hear that then. So here is from about the midpoint of the piece through the climax and into the more peaceful ending portion where there's a theme in the piano that's always been in the minor, but then it starts to get overtaken by the major. It's really quite a beautiful effect. So here it is from William Bochum's Obad for the Continuation of Life, Alex Klein, Oboe, and Philip Bush, Piano. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of a piece by American composer William Bochum, his Obad for the Continuation of Life, as performed by Alex Klein on oboe and Philip Bush at the piano from their new Sadie Records album, When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano. The next piece is also an explicitly anti-war piece, this case by an explicitly anti-war composer, Benjamin Britten. But one of the interesting things about this piece is that for whatever reason, even though he was apparently pleased with the premiere, Britton shelved the work. The work we're talking about, by the way, is his temporal variations for oboe and piano, and he shelved the work and it wasn't rediscovered till after his death. Do you have any theories on why that is? Um, speculation. Uh, uh, it could be a, a number of things. Maybe he didn't feel that the piece just with oboe and piano had the impact he desired. Maybe the oboe and piano's dynamic range wasn't enough to, no? or the nature of the performance. We can have a, a successful performance, but that still doesn't meet the expectations of a composer. And on that note, we never do because we are not the composer. We're human beings. Every human being is different. We're going to always bring our impression of it. It's tough to be a composer because we can't impose. We can't turn musicians into slaves, right? And it may be that he thought the piece didn't really do the job for him the way he expected. But a few years after that, World War II broke out. Mm -hmm. The world that came after that conflict was very different artistically, culturally for Europe. Europe was devastated and they had to rebuild it some places you know, from the Middle Ages or earlier in terms of economic output and services. So life changed and it stayed in the drawer. I think it is a phenomenal piece. And it is very educational for oboe players because it can only be played passionately. If oboe players take that piece out and play, oh, this is a little nice oboe piece and stuff, it sounds horrible. It's just atrocious. And this is almost like uninspiring. It has to be played with passion, and it has to be played with directed passion towards the story. Well, I'd wondered if perhaps having written an explicitly anti-war piece in uh, 1936 might not have been looked on so kindly in the years immediately following, given what was going on in Europe and whether that might be part of it. Perhaps. Yeah. But in any case, as you say, it is quite explicit. And you see the two-note theme that dominates uh, the piece, especially its opening and closing movements, as a way of saying the word enough, right? Yes. I got that idea from Mark Weiger, a phenomenal oboe player who was then professor at the University of Iowa. It was the first time I heard this piece played and that I really understood it. Okay, that's what's about. And he told me, Alex, it means enough, enough. It goes into other things, but even the way Britain wrote it, where the accent is, enough. It's on the A, right? Enough. Like you are saying this with authority. Enough. 
and it develops that same figure through the entire piece until the end the oboe is screaming enough enough and the piano is playing like nobody's business it's just not not even caring like we are uh, trumpeting wars and now writing now in social media please let's not go down that route and nobody's paying attention it just slips into war anyway well in fact the piece is written in nine very short movements they all range from one to two minutes with very explicit titles like uh, oration uh, the dictator or would-be dictator hitting the drum beats of war and march and exercises and later on there are some send-ups of high society people who might have been able to, to stop this but went right along with a rather off kilter waltz and polka that come in at the end I thought in terms of the lead-in to war itself, we might listen to the back-to-back movements titled March and Exercises. What would you like to say about those? The march is very well written. And just like a moment ago, we're talking in Balkum, how things are going bad, and then all of a sudden, the bomb goes off. The same thing happens here. The march keeps growing in intensity. And then all of a sudden, too late, we go right into the movement called exercises. And the exercise of war, the objective of that military march, which has no melody. It's just noise. The exercises is a series of two notes back and forth, right? Yes. It can almost be seen as a technical exercise for the oboe player and the piano, which will be a crude representation of what is a madness. As they say, war is hell. Well, this movement is hell. And the cute thing here, there's a quote from a melody from the Mars, the bringer of war from the planets. Gustav Holtz, the planets is hidden in there. Britain is telling us this is no technical exercise or show-off thing. This is about war. And at the very end, the oboe is screaming enough, enough, until we go into destruction. Well, let's hear some of that then. So here are the back-to-back movements, the third and fourth of nine movements of temporal variations by Benjamin Britten, uh, the march and exercises as performed once again by Alex Klein, oboe, and Philip Bush, piano.
just heard two variations of Benjamin Britten's temporal variations, uh, work for oboe and piano written in 1936, as performed by Alex Klein on oboe and Philip Bush on piano on their new Sadie Records album, When There Are No Words, revolutionary works for oboe and piano, and in this case, explicitly an anti-war work. You talked earlier, Alex, about your struggles with vocal dystonia. I thought after hearing that very challenging music, this might be a good time for you to talk about how you've dealt with it. And you talked, in fact, about even relearning the oboe to be able to play at the level you play at again today. Yeah, when we hear these stories, incurable disabilities, there's no good answer to these things. So we end up looking for a silver lining somewhere because it makes it easier to talk to people, you know? Uh, so yeah, I've relearned to play the oboe. I still have focal dystonia. It's just as there as much as it was uh, forever since the last 20 years anyway, but I've learned to cope, to identify at what point uh, my fingers might do funny things. And what exactly do I do? I do medical treatments and I use uh, prosthetics. Uh, I do whatever comes to my mind to compensate for it. It allows me to play again and to make the most out of the little time I can play without incurring even more tension and problems with the arm. But uh, I am able to have a normal oboe life again. But the psychological trip through this whole thing, through trial and error, and life is passing, you know, we get older. As we come to the conclusion that maybe we're never going to really beat this thing. It's just going to be there to my dying days. Uh, that's the part that I relate to these composers and to this project. It becomes personal to me. When there are no words... It's also my situation. How can I explain this? And I play this music and, and I commiserate with these composers with their situations of exile. I self-exiled from the Chicago Symphony when I left in 2004 because I couldn't play anymore. So as I play Cicada and Slavitsky, I sort of talk to them and they talk back to me through music. Beethoven was a great helper for me because he was also disabled and in music and affected his life as a musician. So when I listen to him, when I read about him, he sort of speaks to my heart as if he's giving me a hug and saying, Alex, hang in there, right? It's been quite a trip, Jim, and I hope someday I can put this into better words. Mm. But for now, there are no words, and I put it into the oboe. Well, we're very glad that you're doing it through this series of recordings. Uh, those who haven't listened to Alex's previous album, the 20th Century Oboe Sonatas, that includes uh, classics like the Poulenc and pieces that may not be as well known, like the Eugène Botza Sonata, but talk about a, a virtuosic piece. It's definitely one people should get to know. But since you introduced the next two composers, why don't we uh, move right into that? And of course... Jose Siqueira was a compatriot of yours uh, a little earlier, obviously, a Brazilian uh, composer. It's noted in Leon's part of the notes that although he comes from a very remote region of Brazil, it's one that has actually produced a lot of art. Yes, very vivid art. The Paraíba and the whole northeastern of Brazil, originally when Europeans came and colonized it, they had cannibals there. 
this has always been a region with very strong will and it's represented in their culture in their artistic production it's almost european in the sense that you can go to the next town and find a completely different point of view in art whereas in the rest of brazil you can have an entire state or an entire region that speaks the same culture but out there in the northeast you go 30 kilometers down the road and they play music differently right so cicada these are great times for Brazil when he lived. It led to the founding of Brasilia as the new modern capital, so cool, and so many advancement in the industry and society and the country getting richer until a military dictatorship got installed in 1964. And anybody who was well exposed in society, and he was, was seen with suspicion because these are people who can say a word or two in a newspaper and bring down the entire junta. So he was very quickly shut down. All of his concerts were canceled. He couldn't conduct anymore. His music wasn't played. And he was considered a communist, maybe because he was left-leaning. So it was a McCarthyism of sorts, and anybody who was left-leaning was considered a communist. But he did go to the Soviet Union. Now, what else is he going to go? Hmm. And stay there for another 15 years or so before returning to Brazil at the end of the military regime. Now, José Siqueira, I hold him next to Eitor Villalobos. Eitor Villalobos came a little earlier and was very important in modernism and in establishing the voice of Brazilian music. So we owe him a lot for, for nationalism, but José Siqueira was just as prolific. His music is fantastic, it's consistent. It's, work after work has that same style, but a lot of his music is underplayed or not played at all. And yes, a lot of it is in St. Petersburg in Russia, right? It's marvelous music and very, very Brazilian. Well, let's get into it then. I should note that Siqueira's dates are 1907 to 1985. This particular piece on this album is his three etudes for oboe with piano accompaniment. And you talk about a couple of different aspects that the piece definitely indicates some nostalgia in its sound, but that it's in an exploratory style that, as you say, tests the artistic and technical abilities of the instrument. Can you explain how that would be? He called them three etudes. I think they're etudes in composition. Sort of the same way that Robert Schumann wrote three romances for the oboe to sort of see what comes out of this instrument. How does it work? So he experimented with high-low register and long phrases, short phrases, rhythms. It's a big salad of styles. And I lived in Paraíba for four years, and I went to his hometown and I got to admire so much the scenery. This is drought country. It's like you're going through Arizona or Southern Utah in the US. And we look at the mountains and there's a stoic sensitivity to them. 
And I feel the same thing in that drought country in Northeastern Brazil. And I hear it in these slow paced melodies of Siqueira, how there is an appreciation for that. Appreciation that maybe people who are not locals will never get, but it's there nonetheless. They know, they feel it. Excellent. So to hear an example of some of those different styles traversed in uh, this piece, I thought we would take a section of the first of the three etudes, which is marked calmo. And we'll hear a bit of the slow section, opening section, but then moving into the very fast and virtuosic middle section. And then it moves on to yet another section which has a loping cowboy rhythm. Uh, <laughs> is this an example of that exploratory style you were discussing? Yeah, the, this cowboy moment, uh, it just has this gentle that we associate with Brazilian music. And then he restates the original slow melody, but with a little more richness uh, in the harmony. Well, let's hear that then. So here is a portion, really the middle part of the first movement, going towards the end, of the three etudes or the first etude by Jose Siqueira with Alex Klein on oboe and again Philip Bush at the piano. You just heard a portion of the first of three etudes for oboe with piano accompaniment, that's the title, by Jose Siqueira, a Brazilian composer performed by a Brazilian-born oboist, Alex Klein, with pianist Philip Bush. This is from their new album on CD Records, When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano. And if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll check out the album in full. 
You can find the album on our website, cedirecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. It's available for purchase on Amazon or Archive Music physically as a download, or you can stream it on Spotify or whatever your favorite streaming service is. And I hope after hearing these excerpts, you'll want to check out the full album as we move on to the final work on the album, which is by another Czech composer, something of a contemporary of Pavel Haas, except that he got to live a lot longer. And this is Clement Slavitsky. And in fact, Alex, you have a rather personal history with this piece, The Suite for Oboe and Piano, which you talk a little bit about in the notes to your previous album, uh, where you played the oboe sonata of Peter Eben, another Czech composer, and you were, as I understand, introduced to both of their music at the same time. Can you explain that? When I was in college and trying to get a strategy to develop my career, I entered lots of international competitions. And the first one I did in Europe was the Prague Spring International Competition. I was given an honorable mention as best interpreter of Czech music. And as I was selecting the music to play, there was a request that we play one piece by a Czech composer, and I didn't know any. And those were communist times, right? This was 1986, and Czechoslovakia was still communist. But they shipped to me the Eben Sonata uh, that was recorded in the previous album and the suite by Slavitsky. And it is my strategy to always choose the most difficult piece for competitions. And of course, practice enough so it becomes easy. It's a way to be more competitive and get more votes. So the Clement Slavitsky suite is much more demanding than the Peter Eben Sonata. So I chose the Slavitsky to present, and that's the one that received the award as Best Interpreter of Czech Music. It's a majestic 20-minute piece, which for oboe is huge. Normal oboe sonatas are in the average 12-minute range, or some even shorter than that. So a 20-minute piece is unusual. And it's very demanding for the oboe, not only musically and technically, but also in the diversity of things that we need to do. From the long phrases, from low register, from very spicy articulation, and then at the same time, the next movement, we have something supremely lyrical. For those of us who play the oboe, who have to make our own instrument, our own reeds, It means that we need to cover a lot of ground with the same reed, right? So it is very demanding for an oboe player to be able to do everything this sonata is asking, the suite is asking us to do. It is a virtuosic piece for both the oboist and the pianist. Uh, In fact, why don't we take a moment here to talk about your collaborator on this album. We're about to hear some fancy playing from him. This is Philip Bush. Can you just talk a little bit about your musical relationship with him and why you enjoy doing these albums and live performances with him so much? Philip Bush is generous. We met at the St. Bart's Music Festival. St. Bart's as in Caribbean, where you go to an island and there is one piano that Philip also had to use as a harpsichord and as a harp and as whatever else that needs to be played by a keyboard player. 
And of course, a lot of pianists will refuse to do that. They only play piano and they, that's all they do. Not Philip. He's cool. He's open. He'll do chamber music. He'll play a concerto. He will play the harp part. It's okay. <laughs> I always look favorably at people like that because I think the world needs more generous people, not people who give instead of people who take only. And for over the last 10, 15 years, we've met several times a year in, in different music festivals and then had a blast playing together. So when it comes the time for us to do a recording, of course, let's do it. And we did it with the 20th Century Sonatas a few years ago. And when the opportunity came for us to do another project, of course, I'm going to ask Philip to join me. He's a fabulous pianist, a great musician, and a generous person. Interestingly, this is a suite in four contrasting movements, too slow, too fast. And while there are definite moments of perhaps nostalgia in the first movement, and even more so perhaps in the third movement, uh, titled, in fact, Triste, French for sad, you and Leon both note that unlike with many of the other composers on this album, extra musical associations don't necessarily work so well for Slavitsky, despite the hardships of his own life. The communist regime in Czechoslovakia forced Slavitsky out of his livelihood. He was taken out of his job. He was head of a composition consort of right. the Czechs, and he was told to go, right. you know, just leave. But in any case, you and Leon both note that he didn't necessarily respond to that with his works. His works still exude often, as you'll hear in this, certainly the faster moments in this piece, one of which we're about to excerpt, a really positive energy. Correct. And it's always been curious to me because as the other five composers in this album were so obviously affected by the situations we described, Slavitsky doesn't seem to be that kind of composer. I think he was just writing nice music and the music he believed in. And even on the trist, yeah, we could perhaps conjure up something, but it doesn't convince me. I see a composer. I see an artist creating and he's not allowing the external situations to divert him from his message. Well, and that's a nice positive way to end this album. And in fact, uh, we heard at the very beginning of the podcast an excerpt from the very virtuosic scherzo. And we're going to end with an excerpt from the fourth moment, which has the great title, Bacchanale Rustico, a rustic bacchanal. What would you like to say about this movement that both concludes the album and will conclude our podcast musically? I could speculate what a rustic bacchanal <laughs> would be like. Now no, we can get some images on that. But this movement is wild. It is tempestuous, it is forward, and it is full of great emotion and party moments, <laughs> of course. It is great to play this, I have to confess to you. It's so satisfying, but the piano part is difficult, is all over the place. So kudos to Philip Bush for his virtuosity. Well, let's hear that then. This is the first portion of the finale, as it were, of Clement Slavitsky's Suite for Oboe and Piano movement titled Bacchanale Rustico, as performed once again by Alex Klein, Oboe, and Philip Bush Piano.
You just heard a portion of a movement titled Bacchanale Rustico, Rustic Bacchanale, from the Suite for Oboe and Piano, the concluding movement of the Suite for Oboe and Piano by Clement Slavitsky, a Czech composer, as performed by Alex Klein and Philip Bush from their new Sadie Records album, March 2022 release, When There Are No Words, Revolutionary Works for Oboe and Piano. Alex, now that people have heard excerpts from each of the six pieces and looking at the program as a whole, what does it mean for you to put these works written in response to, or at least in the midst of difficult circumstances in each case, what does it mean to put these together on a recording and how does it add maybe to these composers' legacies to group them this way? Well, of course, we have a different understanding for each composer and their lives and their contributions. And I am glad to put them together through this line of thinking. That's where they all connect. Then they all connect with me. It's personal for me to play these pieces and to express this anguish through them, through these works. This is good for their legacy to meet in a point when they all had something in common to talk about. Interesting. In another recent interview for CD, you talked about how art and music can serve as a way to cope with and understand such traumatic situations. And of course, we're living at a time right now when democracy is threatened around the globe and even, frankly, at home. Can this album offer any reminders or lessons for today's audiences? And do you consider it a response, at least in part, to our current situation? Of course, and I hope it does. War or any military solution is a failure of dialogue. And it is responsible from a world that seeks democracy to even bring war and militarism to the table. I do realize a lot of people make a lot of money off this. And maybe that's what is behind all of it. As these pieces show, particularly the situation with Balkan and with Haas and Britain, where it goes into war, it's a slippery slope. And we are in it right now, right? And not only with war, but also with climate change. We can't even deal with a virus effectively. We're lacking leaders. We don't have leaders who can come and pull everybody together and say, let's get out of this hole. And as this music represents, we can't go back. We can't rewind the tape and say, okay, that didn't work. So let's go back to last week and not get into war. It's too late. Once we get in, we only get out when there's destruction an incredible loss of life. The last, no, what is the 60 million we lost at the last time we had a world war? And are we going to be pressing that button again? We, like we haven't learned anything? So I'm so disappointed in the leaders of the world. Words and words and words. I'm totally agreeing with Greta Thunberg on this. Everybody wants to win. And that's how we lose everything. It makes me think of that Benjamin Franklin quote, there was never a good war or a bad peace. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Speaking of the various crises that you just noted, what musical and or other artistic responses to these crises that we face today have inspired you? I believe in democracy. I believe in the revolutions that we went through at the end of the 18th century and how we turned the corner on oppression, apparently, or mostly 
I believe in the diversity, the enrichness that came after that. We grew a lot as a civilization in the last 200 years. So the current time, I believe to be an era of reckoning. Since the Second World War, we not only have civil rights, we have women's rights, and now gays and trans, and we are reevaluating how we dealt with the genocides in all the Americas, right? From the tip of South America through Canada, we did bad. And how we are reassessing all of that. We have in music the movement to play Baroque music in original instruments, in period instruments, in classical. And there is even now a performance of Wagner's Ring on period instruments. It seems like we are in an age of reckoning. We want to get it right. We want to go back and not do this thing that whoever won the war gets to write history. We are rewriting history to show the people who have lost, like, for example, with women composers. We're going all the way to the 11th century from Hildegard, and we're saying, wait a minute, it doesn't matter if only the guys got to have a career. These women wrote great pieces, and we're going to play them, right? So we are achieving a lot as a civilization towards equality. And it'll be really bad for us if we had to go back to war. You reminded me with your comment about women composers that we are having a companion digital release to this album in March 2022. Oh, this will be available on streaming sites. It's a piece that you recently took up by Chicago composer Augusta Reed Thomas, which has a title appropriate to the album, but content that was not, which is why it's not on the physical CD, but it's a piece called Song Without Words. Do you want to just say a few words about Augusta's piece that people can hear on streaming sites? Augusta Reed Thomas is one of the great composers of our time, regardless of gender. She's a great creator of music, regardless of any other distinction. It is a beautiful piece, and she writes it for several instruments, and you can choose. You can play it in a clarinet or in the bassoon, for that matter. But in this version for oboe and piano, we did a lovely piece. Very much her vision of music, beautiful, serene, we have expressed in this piece. It's a world premiere recording as well. So people want to hear this piece. This is where you should go. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's yes. good. Good to know. So, yeah, absolutely. How have things been for you since the start of the pandemic and during our rather lurching return from the days when everything was completely closed? Well, I'm fortunate that I was in Canada. I live now in Canada with the safety nets that that marvelous country has I was able to stay at home and receive my salary from the Calgary Philharmonic, which I then applied to preparing for this CD. And I wrote three books, Etudes for Oboe. They are now on their way to being released by Theodore Press in Philadelphia. And I created another website and I got a lot done. I got a lot of practicing that I, I retouched my bass oboe, uh, musette, baroque oboe, classical oboe. I recorded some works by new composers and helping them out so people can hear their music. It's been a very busy time for me, this pandemic. It looks like we're going to have to live with this virus for a very long time. Well, now that you mentioned all the things that you have been doing, uh, what are some of your upcoming projects? 
Oof, where do we start? Uh, I want to develop this idea of these music festivals that I do in Brazil. This is going to be a very busy year. We're going to probably reach over 5,000 students with what we're going to do. Now that doing online things is normal, means we have more access. The internet is better, faster. We have no companies and programs and platforms that allow us to do good work online. And we can then reach more people. So this year, I'm also developing a new chamber music festival in Southern Brazil, a small dedicated only to chamber music, uh, not much orchestra at all. And I continue to teach at DePaul in Chicago. Oboe-wise, there's always at any moment at least four or five recording projects mm. that I keep mowing around. Now, eventually, some of them come to your desk, Jim. <laughs> it takes many years for me to feel like the message has matured. And this particular project we're doing now is a good example of that. Because from the first note of Hindemith all the way to the last note of Slavitsky, it's the same idea that I carry through different languages. Well, and I think that shows in the quality of the performances. And I know I appreciate that as the producer of the album, the thought that goes in long before we actually start recording a note. At the beginning of this podcast, we talked about the different places your career has been based and continues to be split. You're in Brazil right now. We'll be going back to Calgary when the orchestra starts up again. You're teaching at DePaul and making visits to Chicago. Among those, what makes Chicago special or at least different from other places you've worked and lived? Chicago was one of the high moments of my life. The 10 years I lived there with the Chicago Symphony and also teaching at Northwestern, later at Roosevelt. This is a time in my life that still haunts me. It's something that I don't want to let go ever. It's very important for me to be in Chicago. I love my students. I love the work I do at DePaul. And also with CD, of course. And I love the memories that I have there of friends that I had and no longer have. We just lost Dale Clevenger the week we're doing this podcast. All of this is always going to haunt me. Chicago is part of my heart. That is an absolutely lovely sentiment, Alex. And we're so glad that you continue to return to Chicago. And I'm personally glad you come to CD with your recording projects uh, with these really special ideas for recordings that really connect and make an impact. So on that note, uh, I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, thanking you, the listener, once again for joining us on this classical Chicago podcast from Sadie.